0: You are listening to an HD Smartcast original. I'm Chalo. This could be a great intro. Hi, I'm Akshay. Hi, this is Saurabh, and you are listening to the Founder Thesis Podcast. We meet some of the most celebrated startup founders in the country. And we want to learn how to build a unicorn.
1: I'm sure you've heard about Joge Talks, the popular video platform featuring motivational talks by some of the most inspiring people in India. The really amazing thing about the Joge Talks platform is its two very young founders, Shobhit Banga and Supriya Paul. They co founded Josh Talks when they were still in the second year of graduation. And today, it's an honor for us to feature a conversation with Shobhit about his journey from being one of the youngest elite cyclists in the country to founding Josh Talks and discovering his true calling.
0: So Shobit, I I believe you are a Himachali, so what was that whole experience like growing up in Himachal and your father has played a big role in your life, so tell me about that.
2: So I think growing up in a small town is a massive advantage to anyone trying to start up because you get this insight into a world that most people in a big city have not seen. Because the majority of the country is here, this is what in some ways reality is. And growing up in Mandi and Kulu was absolutely a phenomenal experience. Going to a small school, you know, we actually used to sit on the floor and study. There were so many students in class that some had to sit outside the door. So, you know, it's this slightly different from the rest of the country. Never speaking in English... Almost it being like a foreign language like French is right now to anyone. I think uh, growing up in a small town is a massive advantage because of this insight that you get. Then uh, the other very big thing that happened in my childhood was my parents and their role in sort of pushing me to do insanely well. And this, my dad was, it's almost like a rebel that you know, he would push us to do things that were different, that were not stereotypical. So, he also demanded excellence, but it was not in marks per se. So, he was least bothered about uh ki kitne number aa and this and that. He was very bothered about rahe but very less bothered about kitne number rahe hain. You know, our exams, then he would almost take us on a holiday before the exam. So, because we are very close to Manali we'll drive down to Manali one day be- before the exam and the next morning come back directly go to school from Manali. So, you know, there's, there's no studying happening on the last day. Those kind of things. Not because he didn't believe in education, but because he was a rebel. Like subconsciously. I don't think he consciously accept ever that he's a rebel, but I think subconsciously he is because he's always challenging the, the norms. There was this day that happened where I think I was in the 8th standard and my brother was in the 4th standard. My mom was teaching my brother in the drawing room on the ground floor. And my dad was teaching me physics, I think, sitting on the first floor in, in my house in Kullu. And uh, I, th- I think my brother was crying because he was not able to study. And I was frustrated. My dad was trying to teach me. And, you know, we just talked. He closed My dad closed the books. He's sitting on the bed and teaching. I'm, I'm walking around. And he said, Shovit, we're going to Bangalore. And literally, just like that, the next day, I went to school. My brother went to school. We gave our exams. We came back. Our parents had come to pick us up. Sat in the car. In our same school clothes, we drove to Delhi stayed at my grandparents' that night, took a flight the next morning, went to Bangalore. I took admission in a school and we did not come back.
0: So uh, what happened in uh, Bangalore
2: then? One of the reasons that justified this very aggressive move, which was to get up from a city all of a sudden and just move, which is completely unheard of generally. It's generally a very planned move. What made this justifiable, even in our heads, was that... So I used to play tennis in Kullu itself. Kullu has a lot of foreigners. And I used to play tennis in Kulu. I used, it's sort of a make-do court. There's no academy. There's no coach. Nothing. The balls are three months old balls. So, us uh, type ki halat But I used to wake up every single day at four thirty in the morning and go to play by five. And my dad saw that you know, I was quite driven to do this. And he said, okay, why don't we go to Bangalore and do this? We had also gone to Bangalore for a summer vacation a few months ago because my dad has very very close friends there. So we had seen that beautiful corporate environment that was sort of, as compared to a very small town that sleeps by 8pm every single night and there's nothing to do apart from education, Um, this was this massive city and we had seen some of it. We had done some kind of swimming classes, you know, that kind of culture was there. So, Bangalore was the choice. So, so, uh, going to Bangalore, we immediately started looking for tennis academies where I could play. I took an admission in a school, like I said, and I started going to school and playing tennis alongside. Uh, About just a few months going to school, my dad said that, you know, you're playing a lot. You're playing much better than what you were playing. Why don't we just leave school completely and just do tennis full-time? And just like that, I joined that school mid-year. I left that school mid-year and started playing tennis full-time. Even my tennis coach was surprised. And sort of, I think he wanted to say, sure, you're not that good also. But he never said it. By no means was that move logical. You know, I wasn't that good at all. In fact, that was the case. And I started playing very, very aggressively, 6 a.m. in the morning till 6 p.m. in the evening. And also it was, tennis is a relatively pretty expensive sport. So I knew that my parents had this pressure because living in Bangalore is very, very expensive. Earning an Imachal living in Bangalore, not so fair on the pockets. Uh, and on top of playing tennis, like all of a sudden, you almost spent no money in a month, to running expenses are going away from savings. So I can imagine, and I could see and I could sense there was a lot of pressure on my parents. So there was this, tennis was an incredibly hard phase. People say that quitting is easy. I think quitting is underrated. Absolutely underrated because quitting is very tough. It's very easy to continue. Uh, so I could have just continued school, and similarly, when I left tennis, I could have just continued tennis. But to do something that is not the norm is much harder. So I tried very hard, gave it my life and everything. Luckily, I got injured, and I was very happy that this happened because I don't think I would have made a very good tennis player. Actually, we decided that we had to give up tennis. This is about two, two and a half years into playing tennis. And my parents decided that since I'm not playing tennis, Bangalore is insanely expensive anyway. And for my dad, it is becoming very hard because he used to say, come come down to Bangalore for a few days every month. So he said, why don't you come back closer to home? But still in the city, closest city to my hometown is Chandigarh. And my parents shifted to Chandigarh. I also shifted with them. So this is after 10th had completed Uh, So, I I had given my board exams through National Open School. The result had not come out yet, I still remember. And uh, this was about two and a half
0: years into playing tennis. Then what next? So, you decide to go to Chandigarh. Right. So, uh, coming to Chandigarh was also a pretty big decision, right?
2: Because you you had just shifted to Bangalore about two and a half, three years ago. And all of a sudden now... you're shifting again, so you know I somewhere always felt that it was somewhere because of me that so many changes were happening, and that wasn't really, really, really the case. So anyway, so we came to Chandigarh, and I still wasn't going to school. Uh, so even in Chandigarh, I had started doing tennis training with this coach here because it was very tough to just give up something, you know, and to mentally accept that you've given it up. So I I joined a coach in Chandigarh who said that you know there's a DAV school here you're in your, you have to give you 11th and 12th somehow instead of NOS, why don't you give it through DAV school? So he said, you can take admission through tennis quota and you only need to go once a week and see how that goes. So I took admission in DAV. But of course, tennis wasn't going so well. As a part of my fitness training for tennis in Bangalore, one of the things I used to do was cycling. And uh, my cycling coach called me up and said that Shubhi, there's this race happening in Bangalore. It is The longest cycling race that has ever happened in the country. It is 300 kilometers. You ride from Bangalore, beyond Mysore to Chamundi Hills and all the way back. And that's one race. It's over 300 kilometers. He basically said that, Shobhit, I think you're made for it. And you know, I was sitting here frustrated and I was still young. So, you know, I was just looking for an escape uh, to get out of wherever I was stuck. And this was that escape. So I thought, you know what? Another mission. I can go mad after this and forget about All the terrible things that I was thinking about. So I I came to Himachal with the bike that I had. The race was about a month and a half, two months in. I had never trained for a race, never done anything like it. Came to Himachal and just climbed mountains on my bike every single day like a madman. So we we went to Bangalore for the race. My dad came along with me, um, as always. I I don't remember what position I came. I think under six-ish, I think, but I'm not sure. ended up doing extremely well. I was the youngest finisher of the race. And it went really, really well. And I rode over 300 kilometers uh, when I had done a maximum of probably, probably 60 in training. So it is an absolute mind-blowing experience. And and um, my dad and I stayed at my fitness trainer's house itself, the, the cycling coach. And he sort of said that, hey, Shobit, you know, there, there are more races and this is another sport. Do you want to stay back and do this? I said, yes, definitely. I want to stay back and do this. And just like that, I switched from tennis
0: to cycling. Tennis to confusion to cycling. Okay. So, and this was again, which class when you shifted to cycling? Somewhere around 11th-ish. Then what next? Where was, uh, how did you pursue that cycling dream? So,
2: in cycling, there's two types of cycling. Uh, one is mountain bike and one is road cycling. And I was a road cyclist. Now, within road cyclists, you could do something called endurance cycling, which is basically long distance cycling. And that's what I started doing because I had already started with that. And my cycling coach was, was also an endurance cyclist. So one of the most respected cycling events in the world is called the Paris-Brest-Paris. It happens once every four years. It's a 1,200-kilometer race that goes from Paris to Brest and back to Paris. And I started training for that. And and that's that's one of one of the toughest things to do in cycling. Of course, there is one tougher than that also, which is called the Race Across America. And these are the two things that I had in my mind. This is what I had to do. Tour de France is not endurance cycling. Tour de France is about 150 to 200 kilometers per day. So that doesn't qualify for the uh, endurance cycling. So that was not the objective at this time. And I got into it very, very aggressively. Uh, from day one, I started. The qualifiers happen in India almost every year or every few years uh, for people to qualify for that race that happens once every four years. So as I start qualifying, to qualify, you have to do these four races. You have to do a 200 kilometer within a certain time, a 300 kilometer within a certain time, a 400 kilometer within a certain time and then a 600 kilometer within a certain time. So, so you have to do 4 races to qualify for the main race in Paris. In every single of these, I was obviously the youngest person doing them because nobody at 17 or six, 16 does endurance cycling. It's just like not something that's recommended because uh, your body is just not ready for it. But, uh, but I did it anyway and in, and in India, the rules were not so strict. I actually won the 400km race which was one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my life. The 600 happened about one year into into my cycling. And, you know, nobody really, like nobody cycles six, 600 kilometers for fun. Even Lance Armstrong has given this interview on, when he tried to ride 600 kilometers, what happened? I think at 400, he left. So, you know, that was another monster. And I completed 600 kilometers in about 31 hours and a few minutes. And it was non-stop riding apart from a seven-minute sleep break I took in the middle.
0: Wow. Okay. How do you sleep just for 7 minutes? <laughs> I mean how do you wake up after 7 minutes when you're
2: So I think I think I think the firstly is so adrenaline is so high that it's very tough to sleep. But uh, one of the trainings that we always did so my cycling coach made us do was just sit at home and just stay awake. You're not allowed to sleep. And he would make us do this for 18 hours at a time at least and a couple of times we even did 24 hours and 30 hours and and that is much tougher than to be on the road and not sleep so you know you already had this training of not sleeping the tougher part is to get to sleep fast enough which is what uh, you need to sort of train your mind for and and uh, the toughest time is five o'clock in the morning when the sun is just rising and your body is telling you to just shut down and and by that time you've already ridden for you started the previous day at 9 a.m right so it's almost going to be 24 hours already so at 5 a.m we knew my dad was again in the car behind me and we knew that we have to take this break. And it, I, th- I think that day changed me a lot. Because so much happened. The, like a swarm of bees stung me in the middle while coming down from a flyover. Like some 30 bees were stuck in my jersey. Uh, and you couldn't stop. Because if you stop to take them out, you lose 30-40 minutes. This happened just a few minutes after starting. My tire got punctured very, very early on. And everybody went ahead. And I was the last one left. And again, very, very early on. In this race, you're not allowed to take any support from your car. So you have to do everything yourself. So you have to put the goddamn puncture yourself. You have to fill the tire again yourself. So it takes a long, long time. In most cases, your support car can actually support you. In this, the car can be there for medical emergencies, but cannot support you. And I remember that, you know, when you're doing 600 kilometers, you don't even want to do one extra kilometer. And I remember I actually did 618 kilometers. The 18 extra was because I went nine kilometers into, into the wrong way. So after reaching the point, I took some wrong turn, went nine kilometers the wrong way. And you know, when you're doing 600 kilometers and you do even 100 meters wrong, you want to stab someone. We had gone wrong. Then the car started honking from behind. I realized that, you know, uh, the, the pit stop should have come nine kilometers ago. It's not coming. You're getting frustrated. You're, you're waiting for that halfway mark, right? So desperately. And it just wasn't coming. So so we took a U-turn. We finally reached the right spot. I got I, I got down from a bike and the support car can meet you there met and I started shouting and you know I'm I'm screaming and and telling my dad that I'm not doing this and so he just slapped me across my face gave me a tight one you know I'm 318 kilometers into ride a bike non-stop and he gets and slaps me across my face I just become quiet I sit back on my bike and you know the second 300 were much easier than the first you know because all of a sudden you've calmed down you've realized that so I don't know I don't know what happened but I think I think that was monumental
0: uh, how many people do a 600-kilometer endurance cycling in India? Like, how many would have done this?
2: So, I think about 40 people started that race.
0: I think about 20 would have finished. But, well, look, this is like super elite level. Like, maybe point point zero zero one percentage of cyclists would have ever actually completed something like this, I'm guessing, in general.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You need to be in a very different mental frame of mind. Uh, you know because like it's almost you don't even want to drive to Chennai let alone drive to Chennai and come back and let alone cycle to Chennai and come back I think, I think I realize so many things that like for example the mind is completely a lie you know its job is to keep you alive not to make you achieve things so you so as soon as you're conscious of that you know you don't like it anymore and you're always saying whatever the mind tells you is a goddamn lie because it its agenda is not your agenda its agenda is to keep you alive. your agenda is to win its agenda is your life, so it's telling you don't do this. So, so I think I think one of the things that is a very significant learning is don't don't listen to the mind. It's a, it's it's not your best friend because it has its own agenda. It's like a political party, you know. You never know what's the reality. So that thought just stayed with that. You know, you can completely manipulate your mind uh, and make it do anything and make anything achievable. And actually, six hundred kilometers is not tough at all. As soon as you get through the mental block, because physically, can you ride a cycle non-stop for let's say? So you don't need to do it in 30 hours, right? You can aim to do it in 40 hours. So can you ride a bike non-stop for 40 hours? Oh, absolutely you can. Can you walk non for 40 hours? Of course you can. I think that was one of the incredible learnings from that day and from that time.
0: So how old were you when you finished this 600?
2: So I was 17. I remember this very, very clearly because I was 17 and this was the fourth and the final race to qualify for the Paris Press Paris which was sort of like the hall of fame, the goal since one year. And, and the terrible thing that happened was that, so when I wrote to Paris, Paris, Paris so Paris, Paris, Paris May, I sort of had qualified, right? So, but Paris, Paris got in touch saying that you are under 18 and you can't participate um, because you are under 18 and the race was happening that year. And it was true, I was under 18. But in India, they allowed me to participate in the qualifiers anyway. But these guys are super strict and I was not allowed to compete in the race. And I think that was one of the biggest, like even more than leaving tennis uh, and to give up on tennis. This was the toughest hit that, you know, it was all meaningless. Uh, at that time, at least it felt you know, that I did qualify qualified, and I'm aane to rahe, because I'm underage. And that's like a terrible thing to sort of think. And I had to wait four years then uh, to participate. I ended up writing to some of the best endurance cyclists in the world. Marco Bolo was one of the guys, I still remember. And he, he said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, he absolutely rejected the idea of me doing an endurance 1200 kilometer race. And I had to go for the race across America, which is even tougher, which is, which uh, I think there was a sports magazine that called it the, the toughest sporting event in the world is the race across America, for which I also tried to qualify for, but I wasn't able to qualify for that. That was another crazy experience. So basically, when I qualified for the 600 kilometers, the next day I got a call from Vivek Radhakrishnan, who was building India's first professional cycling team. Now, this wasn't endurance cycling, uh, but this was more like the Tour de France kind of cycling, which is short, relatively short. So not 600, more like 150-ish kilometers, 120-ish kilometers, but super fast, much faster than what I was used to doing and what endurance cycling was. And he sort of called me and said, Hey, do you want to be a part of this team that we're building? And I was like, You know, Vivek, of course. (laughs) Like, that sounds crazy. If there's anything happening in cycling in India, I would credit to Vivek and his obsessive madness with uh, anything he sort of chooses to pick up to do and I think he became sort of like my for, for sort of the next few months only actually sadly about a year and a half ish and I started riding for what was then called King Kinney Cycling Team eventually the sponsor specialized Kinkini Cycling Team um, and yeah with, with that team I went I think to Thailand and Singapore and raced across India and it was a fantastic fantastic time as I was sort of also growing up, right, that, that very significant of, like, 15 to 18 was happening, uh, where I was realizing that, like, like what is meaningful? Where does my sense of purpose really, like, where do I get a sense of purpose from? And, you know, obviously those answers are not clear, but, like, for example, a lot of the things that troubled me at the back of my mind was one of, one of my teammates used to work at a cycle shop. He would ride with me in the morning, uh, most elite cycling teams that India had seen yet, and then... Right after training, he would go back to his shop to work there for 7500 rupees salary or something like that. You know, and I just saw that, you know, this guy has potential. He could go out there and be anyone, do, any, do anything. And somehow, because the way our world currently functions, there is no way for him to unlock that talent and potential that he has within him. So it should sort of be the government's job or let's say the ecosystem's job to build an efficient system to unlock somebody's potential like it's not petroleum's job to make a damn good efficient car to go very very high speed uh, it's a human's job to make a car that is very efficient at utilizing petroleum to move from place a to place b and and similarly for a person who's let's say raw material basically it should be the ecosystem's job to create an environment which is very conducive to so efficiency of utilization of human potential has to be higher Like, it is absolutely disgustingly terrible right now. And that sort of connected to me being from a small town and everything else that I'd seen here. So all my friends, what were they doing? Because now you're 18, you're connected on Facebook with some of them. And you see that, you know, I came to Bangalore and the world and life changed for me. And I've sort of seen things and I know where I want to go and I have these dreams and ambitions. But a lot of my friends were running Kirana stores. Like, that made absolutely no sense. That, that, how could a guy who was much better in education, much better in studies than me, is doing relatively nothing as compared to the potential that he had in mean, him and not by choice? If somebody by choice was doing that, fantastic, no problem, you know, but not by choice. So, so this, this, there was a very, very high degree of frustration. So, even in Bangalore, I had actually started this NGO uh, with two of my very, very close friends uh, called Such. Such, the Hindi Wala Such. You know, there was this lie that I basically felt there was in the way we all lived our life. You know, there's this massive lie. And therefore, we just called that NGO Such, like the reality, the truth. And we just went to orphanages across Bangalore. And I believe the early building days of Josh, uh, where we went to orphanages across Bangalore and we basically uh, exposed people to various different things by showing them movies and things like that uh, so, so different movies that had fantastic messages we showed them those movies i also had this uncle in bangalore uh, my dad's friend who i really looked up to and learned a lot from Whose basically outlook towards life was also something that got ingrained in my personality which was to if you have potential you must strive to achieve more and more and more until you find the limitation of your own abilities you just have to go that far you have to touch that mark and you have to push and push and push and um, and that was the, and that sort of uh built the early days of josh uh, when these issues start, started happening and i started feeling this very strong itch in me to do something more more than more than cycling and, and none of it was a very strong thought at that time right it wasn't something i could look back and say i i drew a line it was just uh, some kind of an itch that I was asking for something different uh, that I basically got up one morning at four in the morning, but I got ready, almost packed my bags, went to the airport and took a flight to Delhi. Uh, so yeah, that's what
0: happened. So you decided to go back to Delhi and do what?
2: So at that time, it wasn't really clear. One thing was clear that uh, 12th had ended. And everybody was joining colleges. So that sort of seemed like the thing to do. And I was sort of roaming around aimlessly. So I, when I came back to Delhi, the one thing I knew how to do was run an NGO, you know, and not really an NGO in the sense that raise money and all that, but do things. First thing I did was come here and start another NGO called Half Class Full, where again, the goal was go, go to orphanages and talk to the kids there about the world and the possibilities through content and through activities. And apart from that, I started uh, writing into colleges. To, to sort of study there. So I, so I tried to get into the conventional Delhi University colleges, but none of them accepted cycling as a sport. So I was like, you know, screw that. And there was, so Lancaster University had recently started an offshore campus in India in partnership with G- GD Goinka. So I went there. I had a bunch of offer letters, etc I walked into college. I went to the dean's office, to, to the admissions head's office. I showed them the offer letters. Uh, he, he offered me a fantastic scholarship. Uh, for the first year and sort of that was it and i started going to gd going i knew i wouldn't go to college so i told him that pretty early on that i'm i i don't think I'll, i'm going to be coming much uh if that's okay with you i'll join and that's what happened I, I joined college here and i i was running half glass full on the side like i was running half glass full fully and going to college on the side actually that's how it was
0: so uh, did you also uh, like understand how to raise funds for an NGO and all that at that time?
2: So, you know, I think I think another thing that I learned sort of from my parents was that and, and especially from my dad about how he managed money was that, you know, money is really like meaningless. Like, I think I truly understood what it means to for something to be just a means to an end. you know, not the thing in itself. Uh, so money was never ever at all a question in my mind. Did did I want to do well? I was very clear. I needed to do very very well in life. Uh, but it wasn't that you don't know, have to run after money or anything like that. So even when we were running half class full, I was very focused on ki hum karm kya karenge, inis output kya then where do I get the money to do this? Sort of this belief was there that if I'm doing something meaningful, I'll find the money. And that's what half class full was. But I always knew ki half class full. Because of an NGO structure, because of various things like that may not be the answer to to everything, but I I was learning a lot. I was facing a lot of my insecurities, like talking to people. I used to stammer a lot in my childhood. All of that was uh, getting sorted. So I was like, okay, this is a fantastic use of my time. And college was a great distraction also because um, I had joined some fun courses like statistics, etc. that I really liked. And I'd gone to a college where uh, only a 4% didn't get admission in any, in any college in De- Delhi University. They joined that college. So what ended up happening is that uh, even academically, I ended up being one of the best in that college. And that gave me ins- insane confidence. You know, I'd never been the best till now. In magic, ed- academics, in my school, I was never the best. In tennis, I was never the best. In, in cycling, I was never the best. In cycling was great, but I was definitely not the best in that team that I was in. Um, as probably the last in the team that I was in in the professional team where I joined uh, so this, it was it a fantastic feeling to be winning for
0: a change and when did you meet Supriya, was it during college or uh, after that
2: yeah so I met Supriya in the second year of my college, I met her through a mutual friend who had joined my college in the second year so he became a batchmate. he had transferred from uh, University of Toronto and he came to my university and it was his birthday And Supriya was his school friend who was also part of that birthday party. Supriya and I, so I was like this weird kid who didn't know anybody at the party. And Supriya was the only one nice enough to come and talk to me. And and we started talking. And I found out that Supriya was this genius kid who was a topper uh, throughout. Anything she did, she had to win. Speaks about getting that from her dad and her mom also. um, About her nurturing. And we spoke about that on the very first day of our meeting. Uh, you know, it is probably the most awkward first conversation ever. Uh, but we both talking about our families and how that led to us being who we are and our ability and our own relative unlocking of potential, uh, the unlocking of our potential relative to others was higher because of the nurturing we received and, you know, nurturing we received by chance. And that is disgusting because you can now do that by design because of the internet and because the mobile phone the person has and this is the conversation and this led to Josh. So after my first year in the summer vacations, I had joined the Harvard Summer School. So I took admission to the Harvard Summer School and went to Harvard, uh, which is the first time I was really traveling abroad. I, I had gone to some place in Southeast Asia, but that's not really like going to the US. That was my first trip to the US, first trip to a place like Harvard. And I think that was another thing like the 600 kilometer race, which totally, totally, you know, redefined some, some other things. In my life, like for example, the what is the benchmark of excellence? Like what does it mean excellence? You know, it's where I learned uh, what it's like to be in a room where I I couldn't hold a one minute conversation with some people who actually studied in Harvard. You know, it was just like I was having breakfast with, with a guy who went on to swim for the US Olympic team and was training at that time for it. And you know, so I met those kind of people and it it was just this. And none of these guys were special. You know, they were not very much different from that guy uh, who I used to cycle with uh, in terms of, you know, let's say raw potential. But the nurturing of the potential that this group in Harvard has received was probably one of the best. Of course, you have to work hard and things like that, right? And and not not discounting any of the things that people had done to actually get there. But I think a lot of the things that happened to them were by luck a lot of the things that happened to me were by luck like being born into a certain kind of family i did nothing to earn this again my belief got stronger and stronger that you shouldn't have to be lucky to do well you know it's like it's if we had pet- petrol and we were wasting it that's a goddamn loss so why don't we think of human capital like that if we want to be so wise about spending our money the most valuable resource the world has is human resource is human capital so why are we not using this efficiently and who's taking accountability in this in this world for efficiency of utilization of human capital. You know, at the end of the day, forget about personal victories. What about the victory of the human race as a whole? Who's sort of taking accountability of that? And with that thought, I sort of came back to India and uh, started talking to people about this obsession that I had of why are people not doing enough? And I met Supriya, who came from a completely different background from mine, but was also talking about the same thing. And she she really liked the idea and, and, and another friend of mine as well. And, um, and yeah, we started Josh very soon after that.
0: So, uh, uh, tell me about that journey. Like, how did you start Josh and what was the initial plan and how did it evolve?
2: So, 13 end is when we had started talking about Josh. 14 is when we had unofficially started Josh. I was in my second year. Supriya was in, her, in the third year of her, her college. And uh, after that conversation, I think three months in, Josh had started. Um, at least in you know, the conversations were there. We had started working towards it. Like as soon as you start your company, you become an entrepreneur, right? You're not a successful entrepreneur, but nobody knows that yet. You know, you're, you're, you're an entrepreneur and all of a sudden you become cool. And you start getting invited to uh, speak at startup events and this and that, that, you know. Uh, so we started off with was organizing a conference where we called some of the people who had done fantastically well in their lives and we called youth who wanted to do well? Who had just wanted to make the most of their potential? We we sort of connected the two over that conference, and people shared their stories, and that's what happened in the first Josh, Josh Josh, Josh talks, and that was what Josh talks was supposed to be. The first conference went insanely well. Uh, somebody from SRCC got in touch with us and said that, hey, we, we do a conference every single year. Why don't you take one day of that and let's do a Joe talk?" So that was the second conference that led to the third and the fourth. quickly started going to Bangalore and Bombay and sort of, sort of all across the country and doing Joe talks across. And we started releasing some of these stocks online. Now they were not doing well online, but we anyway continued to release them. Now, until now, Josh was basically making no money, but was insanely loved. So we clearly had something working in the product, but just zero monetization. Uh,
0: A few questions here before you... uh, So you thought of it as like a TED Talks, like an Indian version of TED Talks when you started.
2: So we definitely love TED. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I saw in India, there's this perception that TED is doing well in India. Whereas if you look at it, TED is not doing well in India at all because the majority of the country cannot understand a TED talk. As simple as that, uh, an American guy talking about why the education system is bad, you know, or happiness is so far away from the realities of my friend who was working a 7,500 rupee job after cycling. It's just nowhere close. But that format of TED was working. Let's say three years of Amir Khan totally transformed our country. But you cannot make three idiots 25 times a year. And we need to do that. You need to constantly redefine the narrative. And you could not do that through making three idiots kind of movies. Because we were very actually open to looking at uh, cinema as the way to create a narrative. So George could have very well. We actually had even registered a company called George Stories, which was supposed to just make movies. But that was that was almost obscenely expensive. Uh, and we are still these kids in college, right? Who don't have money and have no experience. And at a startup, like, however lenient your parents are, you will probably get one shot to finally screw up your life. Um, so, so we had to make it work and that's why we went out to the conference and YouTube, which was super low cost. So, at least we didn't
0: burn money. Still, uh, a conference would have still costed you some money, no? You would, might have had to pay for a venue or whatever, Matlab, uh, the cost would still be there. So,
2: so Supriya had some money saved up because she used to teach students something like tuitions, and I had... I I sold my bike uh, to actually pay for that first conference. And then we even took some money from our parents because we eventually did run out of our own money, which the first time we got pretty easily. Luckily, because of the privilege uh that we came from uh, asking for one like was like okay you know let's trust them give them one chance it's better than doing nothing uh, and it's sort of paid for us and also i had got a scholarship from my college so i didn't end up paying for my college as well so my, i think my dad was more than happy to sort of let me fly in some ways i think is how he saw it at that time uh, and similarly for supriya her dad was very very concerned that are doing doesn't make any sense uh, this is never going to work was kind of the vibe but of course you know they they would have had that vibe because what we were doing at that time did not work actually you know it was it was something else that worked and it was never supposed to become a company so we had not said that we are going to start a startup so this was just this one conference that we did we did that conference it went insanely well both our parents were not going to come we hosted this at the air force auditorium
0: and there's free admission no ticket
2: no, there were tickets. There were tickets. We were selling student tickets for 300 and adult tickets for 1,200. I think it's fair to say we basically sold almost no tickets and we had to let everybody in for free. I think we did a total of some 20,000 rupees revenue and we spent 4 lakhs. So it was it was pretty crazy. But our parents attended it. And and that was the crazy thing that Supriya's father had said that he'll come for an hour or so. And my my dad was not even showing up. He's saying that is going to make a fool out of himself uh, in front of so many pe- people. And you know, you're doing the startup first time ever so you invite your family and your extended family and this and that you know so all your cousins are going to be there so my dad was like showbiz is going to make a fool out of myself about his family and everything and, and nobody anyway trusts this Banga Pariva to do anything because they are obviously crazy people who shift cities and take their kids out of school um, so, so, so my dad was like I'm not coming but I somehow forced him to come and I remember our parents had not really met yet but they were talking during the conference and they were like, God damn, this is something else. And stayed throughout the entire time. It, just one of the next, SRCC reached out to say that, okay, do a conference here. We'll cover the entire cost of the conference apart from the shooting that you cover. So we spent only 30000 So So we saw another way to do another conference for almost zero money. And yeah, so, so that's what the first conference was like.
0: And how did you get the guests? Who were the guests there? Like, And how did you get them to agree? Because you were like two college kids with no credibility.
2: Right, so that's a pretty crazy story as well. So basically, we made pamphlets and we stood in markets and we tried to convince anybody that would talk to us. Ki hum kya karna cha rahe and, and you know, it would be really weird because so Supriya would go to Hoska's village generally, and I would go to Gal- Galeria Marketing, stand there with pamphlets. I was a little bit awkward also uh, to talk to anybody else, right? But somehow, we would explain that you know, we're gonna share stories of people that have done incredibly well in their lives, and you know, they're gonna. They're going to help you define your own aspirations and sort of help redefine what you think you can achieve. And well, obviously, 90% people did not even care, 10% who heard. Did not really understand. And there was this always, you know, one or two people every day that would say, okay, fantastic. This is great. I'll come. And then they would never reach back to you. And, you know, pamphlet me. Of course, there was a website to buy tickets. But we would go to Flora every single day and nobody would have bought tickets. And I think it, at that time it was do attend, do dot, dot com or something. And nobody would have bought tickets. So it was pretty crazy. But eventually, uh, you know, we started reaching out. We started going to every single startup conference that was happening. And we started talking about Joe Stocks there very, very aggressively. And then I also met this amazing guy, Yogendra who runs entrepreneurs to Entrepreneurs, which is a startup community who said that, okay, let me also help you try and get some audience. And yeah, we started finding some audience here and there. And I think a total of about 150, 200 people would have attended that first conference in a hall of 670 people or so. so. one day before the conference, we anyway have no money, but Supriya and I take this call to hire a tent to hide the rest of the seats, you know, so that we're able to create a fantastic experience and make the hall smaller, basically. It was a pretty gutsy call. We basically had no money to pay that guy. But we anyway did it. Uh, and it turned out fantastic. Nobody found out the hall was so big. And every, everybody thought that a packed hall, had, sold out show, insane stuff. And uh, we had been able to convince Papa CJ to speak at that conference. I'll never forget it. And, you know, I'll sort of owe him forever for that. Um, we're just these two young kids. And he actually left school reunion in Sana'a to come and speak at. This George So we barely had You know, 200 people were speaking. And he's used to doing thousands of people shows. Uh, he's a comedian, one of one of India's greatest comedians.
0: How did you get all the speakers? Uh, reached out to people,
2: one by one on email, sometimes on running after them at conferences. Uh, Papa CJ mm. was a fantastic story. We reached out to, so we knew we had to get someone famous and someone with a fantastic story. And Papa CJ was to- totally fit that bill. We had seen him on YouTube a few times and Supriya and I absolutely loved him. So what we did is that we started going to the shows where he would speak. We didn't have so much money, so we didn't buy the tickets to the shows where he was performing, but we would wait outside the auditoriums. Um, and there was this one time he was in Gurgaon itself at Cyber Hub at the amphitheater there. And he did a show and by chance that is helper had not come with him. And what we did is that so he had to pick up the stuff and take that to the parking himself. So, I took that chance, I ran to him, picked up his stuff and said, Hey, Papa CJ, I'll carry this for you till the car. And it was the car was about five 500 meters away at the parking of Saibara, which is a little bit further. During that walk, sort of convinced him to speak at Josh.
0: <laughs> wow. And then once you had one kind of like a flagship speaker, then that would have helped you get the other speakers.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that was the game changer. Yeah. Uh, But also apart from that, you know, I remember going to some startup conferences, convincing some other speakers and people looked at this list and said, you know what, Uh, this one guy actually said this. I'm a pretty well-read person and I don't know anybody on this list. So it was something like, you know, I'm not going to speak here or show up here. You know, something like that can really demotivate you. (laughs) So it was obviously a fantastic experience to do all of these things.
0: So next two years, then you do a bunch of more... Conferences without yet forming a company. So, how did it become from like a volunteer-run conference thing to a business?
2: So, I think that took insanely long, and I think one of the reasons it took, which I was trying to share in the beginning, which I don't think I did a good job of sharing, is that you know there, there's this high of becoming an entrepreneur and of being in a startup, and it's not just entrepreneurs' fault. What happens is that the ecosystem makes it to be. Like colleges will invite you, and they don't care whether you've run a company for one month or for ten years. They put you on the same sort of pedestal. Um, and I get that it's sort of the responsibility of the entrepreneur to sort of look at that and say, this is noise. This is not reality. This is completely noise. Like, you know, you can lie to PR, you can lie to invest, you can lie to everybody, but you can't lie to users and you can't lie to a model that works. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. No amount of PR will, will save it, but it takes a lot of time to understand that. And sort of that is what happened with us. You know, we sort of forget about, forgot about the mission and there was this high of doing these conferences. We just did them one after the other, one after the other, kept uploading the talks. And the talks were not doing well online. Like I remember posting everything on Quora. I was just recently on Quora and I saw that I posted these talks in 2014. You know, I wrote my answer questions, I wrote upload own I wrote my own I upload my upvote. Karke, trying trying to do all those things but continuing to do the talks that were not working you know why didn't we see that it's not working why did it take us two years to Mm -hmm. figure that out and it sort of blinded us from the mission which was to unlock human potential which was the conversation which was true which was the conversation that Supriya and I had 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 first time we met which was to try and use what happened to her and me by chance to do that by design for the rest of the world we forgot that we got lost in the high of running a startup and being an entrepreneur and you know doing conferences two years in we sort of had to answer a lot of those tough question, and we said that okay we're going to do this one mega show and we're going to see after that what happens if it doesn't work it doesn't work screw it and if it works we'll sort of continue and it wasn't really said in words but there was this feeling of it not working but somehow you've got this momentum and you don't want it to stop. Uh, so we went to our parents and we asked for money again and we said okay this is the last time. If it doesn't work now uh, we'll do what the hell you say. And both parents loved Josh simply because the value it added to the world. It wasn't doing well but the conferences people were crying. Like you know there was this time in ba- in Bombay we did the conference. I still remember at Ecole Mundial World School and inside there were 500 people sitting and listening to these stories that India had not heard yet and there was this girl Sheetal who was sharing a story. Uh, was from Kamatipura about how her mom put her under the bed while she attended to customers uh, and slept with men, uh, you know, and the torture she went through in that and from that to becoming one of the best drummers in India. She went to the US drum school, got a scholarship there, studied, and came back and one of the best drummers in india like to hear those kind of stories and so our parents had complete faith they did give us the money and this time it was a lot of money i think it was a total of 30 lakhs uh, that we hired and we literally put it into just one show we spent 26 lakhs, 80,000 rupees on one event, which had 2 lakh rupees of revenue. It's called Joe Stocks Leap. We were able, super able to convince Anurag Kashyap to speak at that conference. Uh, by this time, we had a lot of supporters. One, one of our biggest supporters was Ritesh Malik, who had also invested in us um, in the very early days. He gave us 9 lakhs. He and a friend of his together invested 9 lakhs in George. And at that time, it was a lot of money, you know. And that's, that was the money that really took us through all this time when we were basically doing no revenue, trying really, really hard to do revenue, doing 50, 60,000 here and there in sponsorships. Um, another friend of ours from Youth of ours, uh supported us uh, and gave us a couple of lakhs. You know, so at that time, it's, it, it means a lot. And, um, but, but still, all of that was over and it wasn't working. And he said, we're going to do this one last show. I don't know why, you know, right now I'm speaking much, we thinking like, what an idiot, like this is not working and now you're going to spend 30 lakhs doing it and, but that evidence seems so, you know. We spent thirty lakhs on one conference. I think it was the biggest conference that has happened in India ever until that time. We hired the Thyagra Stadium for it, which was built for the Commonwealth Games. Usme bhi log because the nine thousand seat seater hall tha aur usme five thousand log like we couldn't cover 4,000 seats, you know, unlike in the first conference ever where we could cover 300. So yeah, so we did that conference. It was a mind-blowing success, again, audience-wise, but not in any other way. So financially, it, it was a blunder. We were a team of nine people by then. After that conference, we sort of got everybody together and we said, we have no money to pay salaries anymore. If anybody wants, they can stay. And we're going to release these talks online because it's the job's not done until we do that. And we started releasing these talks online. I remember some people who stayed, some for much lesser salaries. And we started releasing these talks online. Two of my very close friends came in to help. These talks started doing well. The bang was about to be released and Babita Kumari had given a talk. That was the first talk, I think, that did well. At this conference, there was also Sonam Wangchuk. GSP 3 Idiots picture hai. And then we had Anurag Kresha, whose talk did well. Then we had... You know, there so are And if we For the first time ever, Jhoj Talks was doing well. And this is when the understanding started happening. It started After this disaster of this conference financially, we started questioning, him And that is when, almost three years after random violence, Supriya and I reconnected with the reason why we had even started Jhoj, which was to unlock human potential, and started differing connecting the dots and we really said what the hell are we doing we have to be vernacular otherwise this makes no sense and that's when we first started focusing aggressively on Hindi in Devanagari otherwise you you write in English and title in Hindi that is not vernacular vernacular is when the text is Devanagari you know and that's what we started doing and that's when Josh really happened so yeah 2018 I would say is when all of that happened which is just 2 years ago so if I say it, there were 3 years of random violence and 3 years of work at Josh until now
0: what do you mean when you say the video was doing well like what how many views and before that how many views were you getting
2: like i actually recently found this screenshot of a website where there were 114 visitors right now how google analytics shows you right now uh, there were 114 on it and i thought that was a massive deal you know i actually took a photo and put it on facebook but but what's doing well so until that time we used to do about 40000 views a month you know, and I used to actually tell people, you know, we do 40,000 views a month. You know, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I knew it wasn't a big deal. Babita Kumari video did 1 lakh views uh, in a very, very short span of time. And that was like fantastically well. I remember when we reached 50,000 subscribers on the channel, which was, I think, in 2018. In 2018, we reached 50,000 subscribers. We actually cut a cake and made a big deal out of it. Uh, looking back, it must have been so embarrassing. As our sub- subscribers, to after running something for three or four years, you're still celebrating. I don't know why somebody didn't tell us or demotivate us saying that you all are idiots. Stop doing what you're doing. Um, a few people did say that, but you know, you never sort of, sort, of, sort of took that into heat.
0: So yeah, that's what it was. So uh, now your videos start doing well on YouTube. How did that become a business? I mean, did it become a business through the ad revenue on YouTube or what? Like, you know... How did uh, it become monetizable?
2: So so once we knew that the talks are doing well online, we knew that we can build something out of this. Uh, So YouTube revenue was never enough. It's still today is not enough also to build a real business out of. So if a single person is running a YouTube channel, like it's a single person company or two, three people company, then you can make money out of YouTube. Otherwise YouTube will, you cannot even survive on YouTube, let alone make money from it, at least in India. Uh, because of the low revenue purview. what we started doing at that time is finding partnerships with organizations, uh, making partnerships with organizations, something like brand partnership. It was very very hard to do this. Um, but when we were raising money for Leap, we had reached out to Facebook to work with them, and Facebook had this agenda of promoting entrepreneurship in the country, uh, getting people jobs and making us a job make making job creators. Um, and we fit very well into that. We were also this young startup hustling, um, and so after leap, for 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 leap they were not able to support. But after leap, they asked us if we can go across the country and do conferences, very much like the Joe Stocks conferences, and promote entrepreneurship in the country. And we and we started doing that, and that's how we started doing our first revenue, doing our first brand partnership. So Facebook was our first brand partnership and from there it went on to a lot of other work uh, the facebook work increasing and us meeting a lot of other organizations and continuously increasing that work. so i think that's when it became a real business
0: give me more examples of brand partnerships facebook so i understand they have a certain agenda and so they give you money to achieve that agenda what what was the use case for other brands to work with you
2: so I think we we worked with Benetton, where Benetton also had a similar agenda, where they were saying that uh, equality uh, between genders, um, and we had a lot of stories that depicted this. So they wanted us to do a couple of conferences and share a lot of stories. We did that. Benetton was also one of the early early ones, and at that time your costs are so low, right? That even just these two partnerships got us through then uh, came itc where itc also had women related campaign they wanted to do which was about not compromising uh, so we had partnerships with these colleges across the country uh, we probably still have one of the highest distribution within colleges uh, in terms of partnerships so oh, almost i think about a thousand to two thousand colleges now and they wanted to reach colleges and talk about these stories and talk about women rights and equality and we started doing that with itc and uh, then uh, other brands kept on coming with similar requirements and we work with them. So 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 we work a lot with Swiggy now. We 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 work Google now and things like that.
0: Oh, what is uh, the benefit for Swiggy? Like, what are they getting out of it, or what is Google getting out of it?
2: With Swiggy, what we are doing so so one of the toughest things for Swiggy is to recruit. Their, their delivery executives because that is one of the highest cost for them in their operations and our target audience is literally so we started helping swiggy hire this is a part of a joe's jobs vertical that we had started and similarly for google google is launching google jobs and we're supporting google to promote that and to build awareness for that so none of this is ad revenue we did a lot of work with un as well UN wanted wanted the youth to talk about poverty and wanted to create a narrative and we did that with UNDP we also worked with UN Women and ILO and a bunch of other UN agencies and all of our brand partnerships is with organizations or departments within those organizations that have alignment in the work that we are doing or in the mission that we have.
0: Okay so if I was to summarize your sources of revenue uh, one source of revenue for you is YouTube advertising which you said is a small percentage of contribution from there Uh, the other source of revenue for you is uh, like a sponsored event uh, like what you did with Benetton for example uh, or for Facebook Uh, the third source of revenue is where you are uh, doing some sort of branded content to generate leads like what you're doing with Swiggy and Google
2: Right, or also any kind of data collection. So any kind of branded partnership on any kind of program that may be online or offline. So it's not necessarily branded content only. Uh, so yeah, all kind of brand partnerships.
0: How do you collect data then? I mean, uh...
2: so so we we have over um, I think about I think we do over about 70, 80 million views a month now. Um, so that's a very large data set to collect any kind of data from
0: how how do those views translate into uh, leads for Swiggy and Google?
2: So so in a lot of our campaigns, there's a comment with a link there, and people can go into that link, fill in the information, and that leads to any traditional way that any data is collected similar to that. Yes, yeah, so, so because Josh is suggesting something, it comes with a certain degree of trust <laughs> and reliability of information, which is basically what uh, for example, swiggy gets from
0: us. So, uh, in a way, this uh, I think is called uh, native advertising.
2: Right, in some ways, some ways, yes. I mean, it's not aggressively like what native advertising traditionally is, but something like that. A fourth source of revenue is Joe Skills, which is uh, what the focus of the organization is right now, and something we're building out.
0: Uh, tell me more about Joe Skills. So
2: here was the thought, right? So, uh, unlock human potential happens how? Uh, so, if you look at the life of someone, let's say somebody who went to Harvard, and somebody with the potential to go to Harvard but could not go to Harvard, right? Ended up becoming. So let's say somebody was born to a security guard. When he turned twenty-five, and 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 when the guy who was born to a different family turned twenty-five, the output was completely different because the nurturing that that happened. And we started looking at what are the things that made it different. So whoa, kya, alag, kya? That i a, son a security guard's Let's say Satya Nadella has become a child in the first 25 years. And one of the massive differences was access to role models, uh, which happened through Joe's Talks, which is what Joe's Talks as a product sold for India. It wasn't inspiring talks. It was to give rural youth access to role models. The second thing that one of the other very big differences, something that, for example, I got because of my dad and my mom and my family, uh, and my ecosystem—that, for example, my friend who was a cyclist, who had the same problem, much more potential than me, but did not get—was access to learning certain kind of things that put me in a very unfair advantage to do well in life. So, for example, I could speak in English fluently because my mom forced me to read, and my dad forced me to meet me to read and to talk in English, um, and and because my mom knew English already. Uh, Then I learned how to use the computer because my dad was always very enterprising about the internet or the computer and he showed me the computer when we first bought it. And because he was a doctor, he had it in his clinic, you know, because that's how they made reports. So I go to his office and use it there uh, and somehow, you know, make the format for his report. So I had used probably Microsoft Word before anybody was using Microsoft Word. Now these are massive, unfair advantages that are so easy to replicate. And even today a security guard son doesn't know how to use Excel. It is disgusting that we have made no progress in 20 years. The objective behind your skills was that what are the things that, for example, I learned in my life that are intangible, that are not hardcore educations. They are not trigonometrically taught because of education system in a school, but they're intangible that I learned because of my ecosystem. Those can be replicated and teach to people through the medium of the mobile phone. And your skills is simply an app where you can learn a lot of these skills and you can learn them at extremely low prices something around the price of uh, a mobile phone recharge so around two three hundred rupees and you can learn all these what are some of the skills so there are some skills platform that are hardcore scaling platforms we don't want to become that uh, we just want to remain to things that are probably even intangible and something that other hardcore large skill platforms may not even consider worthy of getting into simply because very tough to make money from them so some things are obvious here like english and computers then comes financial literacy interview tips and things like that because so much content is available on the internet very tough to make money from it nobody's aggressively focusing on it the information is all over the place and and doesn't give high quality information like for example what you and i probably receive because of our ecosystem how to make a cv so leadership lessons from the bhagavad gita is something that my grandmother taught me um, how to talk to anyone right so how to have confidence in speaking and how to how to not be shy and things like that very very intangible skills that others may not consider worth doing because you can't make money from them and we are looking at aggressively growing uh, talks the talks business we are now in 11 countries eight countries going to 11 countries with the talks product
0: so talks product is essentially sponsored events talks
2: is youtube uh george talks the videos that go up online yeah we take we're taking these two countries across the world mainly there are three sources right one is uh, let's say branded partnerships so we don't do any kind of hardcore sponsorships so everything is a brand partnership so there's not exactly like a sponsorship then is youtube and then is skills if we leave skills aside uh, we do almost 90 percent from brand partnerships and 10 percent from from youtube and
0: skill is very very new and what is the traction been for skills so far? Do you see it becoming like a, like, you know, a million dollar kind of a business, uh, given the low ticket size of it?
2: Absolutely. But I think one of the reasons that others are not doing low ticket sizes is because it's very tough to run a business on 300 rupees per transaction. You know, where the lifetime value is, let's say, under 1000 rupees. Incredibly hard to cover even customer acquisition prices in that. The goal is not to become a billion dollar business. The goal is to unlock human potential. So um, we may have to become for that reason. uh, And it may be something that happens on the path. We see this becoming extremely large. Yes. Can this do multi-million dollar revenue? Yes. Is it on the path to do so? Probably. I can't say for sure right now. But uh, what we are very, very focused on is looking at a person who can do drastically better in his life but is not doing because he doesn't know how to speak in English, doesn't know computers, is financially illiterate and has no values and principles that are required to do well.
0: Okay. And uh, how are the roles split between you and Supriya? Like what do you look after and what does she look after?
2: So it depends. Time to time, they keep on changing with whatever is the most urgent thing. Um, So if you look at right now, Supriya mostly does uh, all the revenue and I mostly do all the execution of the talks.
0: Some words of wisdom for our young listeners.
2: So here is the case, right? Most people start a company and that's fantastic thing to do. But it has to be started, according to me, because of a mission. You have to have a mission, a wrong that you want to right. Because unless you want that, it is incredibly hard to win incredibly hard to be successful because it is so tough this path we only hear of the one in 10 stories or actually one in 50 stories that makes it those 49 other stories are just lost opportunities they can also win one of the reason that i believe it's one in 50 or one in 10 or 100 whatever that one out of is is because that one guy worked really hard and somehow his business made sense For the others, they could have also sustained and figured it out over time. But to do that, uh, there's an Elon Musk interview and he explains it as, you know, it's like you're eating nails. You put nails into your mouth and now you're chewing them. You're eating the nails. It pains that much. So unless you have a mission, a right, a wrong that you want to write, a sense of purpose behind what you're doing, you, you will stop chewing them. You need to get through that phase of that extreme pain and continuous pivoting most people will not get through that. And money is not at all the reason for failure. Money is not at all the reason. There just wasn't enough reason to continue. Uh, you can't have that. So do not get up and start up. Like, go explore. Find a wrong that you have to write, uh, Find a problem with the world that you can't sleep because of. something. Like, find something that you can be loyal to more than your own company. I actually say this, you know, that my loyalty is not to Josh. My loyalty is to unlocking your potential. For us to unlocking human potential, um and and not not there's no long term there's no power in that contract. It's just it's just so loose and lousy. um So 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 if you have to get through those insanely hard days, like like you know like if like people care so much about Elon Musk, but they don't care so much about the fact that all he cares about is to make humans a multiplanetary species. That that's it. Like every way for him to decide what to do is will this speed up my goal or slow down my goal. So so where the hell is your mission? And find that mission.
1: So that was the fascinating journey of Shobit from the village of Mandi to the stage of Josh Talks. Do check out some of the most inspiring Indian stories on the Josh Talks YouTube channel or download the Josh Talks skills app. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books and drama. Visit the podium.in, that is, T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M pod ium.in for a complete list of all our shows.
0: This was an HD Smartcast original. HD
1: Smartcast. Log on to HDSmartCast.com to listen to more such podcasts.